0: Well, let's, uh, let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you so much for this Christmas season, for this day to come and worship you. We pray, Father, that you indeed teach us how to rejoice before you as we gather with our families and we feast and we drink and we open presents and we look to a new year, Father. We pray that you give us hope and give us comfort, that even as you show us our sin through the light of Christ, Father, You guide our feet through to the way of peace. We thank you for your word. We pray that you open it to us now, open our hearts, that we may receive it. And we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So what we've been talking about the last couple of months is the battle for our minds. Lies are trying to displace the truth. Lies are trying to shape our affections and guide our behavior. The battle is real and it is difficult. Pastor Dean has spent a lot of time teaching us how the lies affect us and how to dislodge them. And I'd like to just go on record now with a hearty amen to everything he said for the last 5 weeks. I want to augment what Dean has been teaching us by looking at how we can go out, uh, go about confronting the lies as they arise head on. Now, I don't know about you. But there are there can sometimes be a wild disconnect between my devotional time and the rest of my day. I read prayer books, I read the Bible, I read works of theology, and it's like I'm drinking from a glorious fountain. I feel refreshed and encouraged, and then I get up and go about my day and can't even make it to work before I feel like I am in the high desert, grumpy, disgruntled, frustrated at drivers and coworkers and my poor kids. Why do I so easily forget what I learned? Was it just shallow and superficial? Easily, I feel like it's just a big waste of time. But God calls me to do it, and so I do it. And sometimes it's just that, a routine. But sometimes I even feel, I go so far as to feeling that God is just getting my hopes up, that he's somehow setting me up for some terrible thing to happen to me (laughs) before lunch. But that's just a lie. It's a lie. So what's going on? Why do we open our Bibles and read it and feel encouraged and close it and go about and feel discouraged. What I have discovered is that I've actually been reading my Bible wrong, which was nice. It was nice to find that out (laughs) all these years. I put too much into the immediate moment of reading it instead of letting it shape how I see the world. The Bible is called special revelation. That's a fancy theological term for God's special revelation. He, at certain times and certain places, visited prophets and apostles and told them to write things down. It was him revealing himself, his name, his nature, his person, and and recording it in, in a Bible so that we could walk around and have it wherever we went and read about him and understand his plan of salvation and what he's been doing in the world. But the Bible is also a manual. It's a statement by God on how to understand the ongoing conversation that he is having with us through the natural world. God is speaking to you every minute of every day, no matter where you go. And that's called natural revelation. We often think of rain and seasons and light and hunger and flowers and earthquakes as natural occurrences. But there are no impersonal forces. Neither is God in everything. God is God and creation is creation. Creation is separate from him, But creation is a tool. Teaching always involves tools. It involves whiteboards and markers and handouts and textbooks and questions and answers and grades, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Creation is God's teaching toolbox. He uses creation like teachers use their toolbox. God uses creation to teach us, comfort us, and guide us. Like Dean said last week, God uses means, and God created a universe, an entire universe, all of creation, as a means to minister to us in our need, in our doubt, and in our disbelief. I have learned that the outcome of reading and understanding the Bible is that it ought to shape my understanding of creation, which God uses to preach and minister to me all day long, well after my devotional time has in fact ended. It's important, to, too, to, to see, um, to use special revelation to help us understand natural revelation. Because if you just go about trying to understand natural revelation and God speaking to you, you could come up with all kinds of faulty conclusions. Uh, it, can, it can flood, and you can be on your roof, and you can think, I think God is telling me to get a boat and sail around the world. Well, that's a conclusion you could come to, but that's not maybe necessarily what God is saying to you. So first I'm going to explain what natural revelation is. And then how it interacts with special revelation. And then I'm going to use just one created thing, light, to show us how God is preaching to us all day long. So what is natural revelation exactly? What is it? Genesis 1.3 says this. And God said, let there be light. And there was, in fact, light. God spoke, and his words became real objects. When we speak, we simply... Put it out there and it affects the airwaves, and nothing actually is created from them. When God says tree, the result is a tree. When He says light, there's light. When He says dirt, there's dirt. When He says things, it, when He says it, it creates it. That's how He created everything. Psalm 33, 9 said, For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. But God didn't just speak and let His words echo down through time. Hebrews 1, 3 says, That God upholds the universe through the word of his power. What is everything made out of? This is one of the questions on my students' final last trimester. What is everything made out of? God's word. That's what it's made out of. He is upholding everything right now by his words. He spoke the world into being and sustains it by the power of his word. This is a very mysterious thing. As mysterious as the doctrine of the Trinity or the incarnation of Christmas. But it's true. God's intimately involved with every created thing. He is upholding it. If it's created, then it continues to exist because he is speaking it into existence. How? That's always the question people ask me. Well, I can confidently say I have no idea. No clue whatsoever how. I'm not concerned with the how. I'm going to avoid the how because I can't explain the how. But we know that the word of God is Jesus, St. John says in the opening of his gospel, in the beginning was the word. And Colossians 1 states so beautifully, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the words of God made everything, and the word of God holds everything up, holds everything together. God is upholding everything in creation with the power of his words. That is what is happening. He's showing us he doesn't get tired, and he isn't far off. He isn't distant, and he isn't weak. Think about it. He never takes a break. Never think, nothing stops existing for a moment and then comes back. He never gets tired. He never Like me, I work for 15 minutes and I need a break. God is constantly speaking, constantly keeping everything together, holding everything together, and he never, ever, ever gets tired. He's also very intimately involved with everything because everything is made from his words. We are modern science-based people. And so the idea that the metal that makes up our car and the cotton that makes up our threads and the proteins and our meat are God's words. That God is speaking to us in these items is profound and strange and should be immensely comforting. Should be immensely comforting. His care, his attention to detail, his power is stated in the existence of everything. But that's just the marvelous beginning. I'm just getting warmed up. Romans 1.20, for God's invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Now, this is extraordinary. God's invisible attributes, the things about him you cannot see, the nature of his being, his power, what makes God God can be seen and perceived in the things that he's made. He's showing you what he's like. This is extraordinary. Nature tells us about God's Godness! Have you ever experienced a flood, or a tornado, a hurricane, or a lightning storm? I was once uh, in Michigan visiting my family that lives there. My uncle's here with us now, and uh, we were outside. And it was—I saw a tornado. I experienced tornado force winds for the first time, and it, it was terrifying. I thought, "Take me back to Seattle with the rain, please, as fast as you can." <laughs> It gives you the feeling that there are things that are too powerful for us to control. No matter how strong and good we get at predicting when a tornado is going to happen, there's nothing we can do about it, right? We simply dig down into the earth and hide. This is a statement nature is making about God. There are forces beyond us that guide where we build and when we go outside. Have you ever noticed that daffodils and the sun are both yellow, and yet they are completely different in every other way? Nature displays in a myriad of ways a unity and diversity that's startling at times. The triune God, the maker of heaven and earth, is both unified and diverse. One God, three persons. Have you ever thought about what food is declaring to you? A table full of dead things, dead vegetables and dead meat and dead grapes. Give us life. Death gives life. A little gospel proclamation every time you sit down to fill your face. The natural world is God's instructional toolbox. This can be seen in Genesis when God uses animals to teach Adam. Genesis 2, 19 through 20. I love this scene. The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the, of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. The man gave them names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens to every beast in the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Adam is looking at the animals going by two by two. And notices something important. There isn't a helper, a spouse for Adam. In Genesis 2.18, God had said that Adam was alone and it wasn't good. But he doesn't tell Adam that. He shows Adam that by allowing the animals to come marching by. God uses nature to teach Adam that Adam is incomplete. Something is missing. The situation isn't good. And God doesn't tell him this. He shows him in nature. Another example of this is Proverbs six six through eight. Go to the ant, O sluggard. That's a lazy person. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, the, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The ant teaches the sluggard. An ant teaches a man what it means to be a good steward. Teaches the sluggard about order and diligence and perseverance and patience, all godly virtues from a little ant. Job's friends didn't understand the sovereignty of God. They didn't understand what was happening to Job. Job was a little sick of listening to them, and so he directs them to the natural order to teach them. Job twelve seven through 15, But asks, ask the beasts, and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of everything and the breath of all mankind. Who controls events? Who is all-powerful and all-sovereign? God is. Who causes floods? Who provides for all the living things? Ask the bushes and the waters and the birds. They know, and they'll tell you. God is speaking to us. Creation is an ongoing monologue. God has life in himself. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get hungry. He's not wearied, and he's not distant. Everything he's made is a declaration about himself and are his tools to teach you about him. We leave our devotional reading and go out and feel far from God because we think his words are kept between two leather leather covers on the shelf. It's what we think. It's what I thought for years. There's God's word. It can fit in this little book, and that's where it exists. But that's not actually true. Everywhere, always, God is speaking to all of us. Declaring the truth. He is God, He is good, He provides, and He is penultimate. Look at the bacon on your table. Look at the clouds full of rain. Look at the beautiful feathers on a blue jay. Contemplate Mount Rainier. God is speaking. Listen, listen. Don't stop believing ever in the Lord, He is always with you. See the lies for what they are. God is not far off, God is not weak. God has not withheld his grace from any of us. God is with us, and his word upholds us and sustains us. So if this is what natural revelation does, which is a lot, what, who needs special revelation? Am I telling you just to go outside and stare at birds and trees and bushes and forget about the Bible? No, please don't do that. In, in northern Europe, um, people contemplated lightning and thought, yeah, there's a personal God behind that. I think his name is Thor." And they didn't have special revelation to tell them that that was nonsense. So we always have to temper studying natural revelation by including special revelation. Special revelation answers the questions and fills out the framework given to us by natural revelation. Natural revelation reveals many things about God, but it doesn't reveal everything about God. Natural revelation causes us to ask a lot of questions, which special revelation answers. It works like a catechism. You're staring outside. You see something that confuses you. You look in God's word and it explains it. What's the point of light? The Bible tells us. You can see God's attributes and his essence in nature, but you can't learn his name. Creation doesn't tell us God's every thought. Ann and I like to watch, people watch. I don't know about you guys. It makes us feel creepy sometimes, but we like to be in, the, in public places and find a bench and observe man in his natural habitat. And it's amazing what you can learn about people. You can tell if someone's marriage is going well in about five minutes of observing them at the county fair. <laughs> you can tell how someone's doing financially. You can tell what they like, what they don't like, what stores they linger in, what rides do they choose, how do, how, what are they eating. Um, there's a lot you can learn about people. But I've never stared at anyone long enough to know their name. Right? I can't just tell by the way they eat popcorn. In a similar way, natural revelation shows us that there is a God. Shows us what he's like. Shows us what he likes to do, what he doesn't like to do. But it can never show us that he is God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. You can never stare at the unity and diversity in nature long enough to know that. The Bible is God's special revelation. Special revelation tells us his name. This is what he first came to Moses and said, I am the great I am. It tells us his address. He lives in heaven. It tells us his plans to save the world. It tells us his thoughts. Not all of his thoughts, but more than enough thoughts for us to handle, to make quite a lot of theology out of. The seasons tell us that God is a God of death and resurrection, right? We can all look at outside and say whoever's in charge of this for some reason likes death that leads to life, that leads to death, that leads to life. But staring at natural revelation could never tell us that Jesus, our Savior, um, was going to come in the flesh in the first century in Rome in a manger, later die on a cross to go into the ground. Right? Natural revelation will never tell us that that was going to cover all the sins of the world. That's why we have special revelation. Notice in the previous section natural re- on natural revelation, I used verses from Romans and Psalms and Genesis and Job to make a proper to give us a proper understanding of what natural revelation even is. I had to use special revelation to make the case. Natural revelation is not complete in itself. It needs scripture to confirm and shape the message we are getting from it. The issue I want to address today is how to commune and reflect on truth when we are out in the world away from our Bibles. One way is to memorize Bible verses. That's a very good way I suggest you do it. But another way, what we are concerned with today, is that special revelation teaches us to hear God all day through natural revelation. And what I'm going to do now is demonstrate what I'm talking about using one thing. Now, I could use any number of things, trees, rocks, clouds, wind, water, dirt. I could use a lot of different objects in the Bible to demonstrate what I'm talking about. But since it's Christmas, since we're talking about Jesus, I'm going to use light. We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about light so that when we go into the world and we're far from our Bibles, light can preach to us all the time. If we read special revelation, we learn to see an important teaching tool in natural revelation. After darkness, light. This is a, a phrase I want all of you to learn. After darkness, light. Using darkness and light, God teaches us deep truths about ourselves, our world, and our God. Now, everyone, if you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 1. What we're going to do is look at verses 2 through 5 and learn something about God and ourselves by looking at light. Genesis 1, verses 2 through 5. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. First off, darkness isn't a created thing. Darkness is nothingness, and it was already there. Light is created. Light is the first thing God created. It has a preeminent position in the created order, but we see right here in the very beginning darkness is the absence of light. Darkness was over the face of the deep in verse 2, and God creates light in verse 3. First there was darkness and then there was light. After darkness, light. Then God separates the light from the dark. God is working with light on day one, which is very fascinating because he doesn't make the sun, moon, and stars until day four. This is startling to me because I always thought light came from the sun. But he makes it, and then he makes the sun on day four. Light is something all by itself that God is using. God creates it all by itself. So light is a created thing that exists apart from the sun. Now, there's a sermon there all in itself, but I'm not going to get into that right now. For now, I'll say that light exists separately as a teaching tool. The sun doesn't produce light. The sun is light's house. That's all I'm going to say about that now. In verse 4, okay, back in Genesis 1, God separates the light from the darkness, naming them day and night, and then arranges them in a specific order. In verse 5, it says, it was evening and it was morning the first day. God arranges the 24-hour day to be a period of night that is followed by day, after darkness, light. We We are used to midnight being the beginning and end of the day. The day begins in darkness and ends in darkness according to modern conceptions of time. Now, there's more to this than we think. Secular worldview sees no meaning in the origins of mankind or the end of mankind. For them, things end in darkness and begin in darkness. This comes from the chief pagans. The reason that we have a day that starts and ends at midnight comes from the Romans. Midnight to midnight measurement of the day came from Roman ritualistic timekeeping. And it had to do with the worship of stars. It's a universal reality at this point, used the world over. But the Hebrew way of measuring a day, the way God design, d- designed it in the Bible, is that night precedes day. After darkness, light. God wants us to see the world in a particular way. Evening begins the day, morning comes halfway, and the last half of the day is lived in light. This is how God designed our 24-hour day. Now here, special revelation is guiding us how to see natural revelation. The Bible shapes how we interpret the natural world, the created world. Now why? Why did God do this? Why does he say evening and morning the first day? He has a point. It's not random. We read in Psalm 19:1 through 2, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Day is speaking to us. Night is revealing knowledge. What is day saying? What is the night teaching us? When we see night and day, darkness followed by light, what are we supposed to learn from the pattern? I'm going to stop here for a moment and just talk about light and darkness for a moment. Let me um, interject at this point that darkness is used over 200 times in the Bible and only five of those times is referring to actual physical darkness. The other 195 times, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. He's almost always using it as a metaphor. Darkness of the heart, the darkness of the mind, the darkness of the spirit, the, dar- the absence of God's presence. Light, on the other hand, is created in Genesis 1 and done away with in Revelation 25, 22, five. This is what it says. And night will be no more. they will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, God has created light simply to teach us something. We're not going to need it once we go to the new heavens and new earth, because we will all see by the Lord Jesus Christ. Between Genesis and Revelation, the imagery of light makes nearly 200 appearances itself, with light emerging as one of the most dynamic and complex symbols in the Bible. God created light to juxtapose darkness, and both are tools in in his hands to teach us deep things about himself. Think of some of the characteristics of both light and dark. With light, we can see. It casts out fear. Many people are, are afraid of the dark, but I don't know anyone who's afraid of the light. With light, we see and comprehend. We can see ourselves, our environment, each other. We can navigate. We can make out what the objects are in the room around us. Darkness is associated always with blindness, with the absence of sight and comprehension. In a completely dark room, I can't find my way around the room, right? Have you guys ever sat in darkness and the smallest of noises suddenly become, you know, roaring dragons? (laughs) I'm terrified of what I can't see, frankly. Light and darkness are two of the primary tools that God uses to teach us, okay? And what I wanted to look at today is simply the arrangement of them, darkness and then light. Ultimately, what is all of this about? All this teaching and declaring through this process of darkness followed by light. It's about our rebirth in Christ. It's about the story of salvation. It's about the hope in the dark days of life. God couldn't have packed more into this process of darkness followed by light. What is all this about? John eight twelve, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light was created so that Jesus has something to compare himself to. He comes into the world, and he's going to teach us about him. And for thousands of years, he packed the world with things, objects, that he uses as symbols in the Bible to teach us something. What is Jesus like? In other places, he refers to himself as bread and water and so on. Here, he calls himself the light of the world. When he says that, everyone says, yes, okay, he's the light of the world. I get that. I get what light is, and so I get what he's saying. So God makes light to help us understand Jesus. We begin in spiritual darkness. Everyone who is a believer started in spiritual darkness. We are spiritually blind to the ways of God. We are blind. What is that like? It's like sitting in a dark room. The moral and spiritual reality apart from God is darkness. Physical darkness is the absence of light. Spiritual darkness is the absence of Christ. So we are born in darkness until Christ, the light of the world, is revealed to us. When we come to faith, we come into the light. After darkness, light. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God created the day, darkness and light, evening and morning to tell us the gospel every day. He never gets tired of the same story about his son because he does it every day. After darkness, light. We were in darkness, and now we've come to the light of Christ. It's how the day is shaped, it's how our conversions are shaped, and it's how history is shaped. Man fell in the garden and plunged the world into deep darkness. Just as the day begins in darkness and halfway through, the dawn comes, so history begins in darkness until the dawn of Christ. Luke one seventy eight through seventy nine. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Mankind sat in deep spiritual darkness. We were fallen and broken. Then Christ came like the dawn to free us from the dark. The Bible declares that each new day declares that this is the shape of our days. This is the shape of our spiritual lives. It's the shape of history. After darkness, light. Look out your window. Look out your window. Look at the flow of Scripture from the dark Old Testament period with its types and shadows flowing into the glorious light of the Gospels, the Christmas story, the most glorious dawn that ever happened. And when lies attack you, combat them with this reality. Combat them with the Gospel that God is preaching to you with your very eyes. I was blind, and now I see It was night, and now it's day. I was sat in darkness, and now I sit in the glorious light of Christ. The metaphor of light and darkness is dynamic. Though we bear the light of Christ, life often plunges us into shadows and uncertainties. We can at times feel blind and uncomprehending, even as Christians. I feel blind and uncomprehending all the time. Sometimes we cry out with our father David in Psalm 88, 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep. Now, David is a saved child of God, and yet God, through the circumstances of life, leads David into the shadows. This is something common to all of us. Sometimes we sit on the edge of the bed, and we look at the task at hand, and we hear the kids crying from the other room. We look at the deep pain or stress our spouse is going through, and we can't comprehend. We feel blind to what God's doing. We feel like we are in regions dark and deep. Psalm 88, 88.18, David says, you have caused my, my beloved and my friend to shun me. Darkness has become my only companion. Now, I don't know about you, but I have felt that way frequently. Life is uncertain. I am foolish. I sin. And sometimes it feels at times like my only companion is darkness. And what is darkness like? Sit in a room and turn the lights off. That's what life is like at times. When the bills pile up, when the illnesses linger, when you wonder if God is there, darkness becomes your companion. What is he doing? Why won't he wake up? We can't comprehend how these circumstances are good for us, generally in life. But what is coming? Here's where we wrap it all together. When you're sitting in darkness, what follows? Light. After darkness, light. Light. The sky declares it to you. The night teaches us. The dawn cries out. The word of God written in the stars and the sun and the moon, the words of God written in Luke and Ephesians and Acts declare it. After darkness, light. We've gotten the news from the doctors, the call from the police about our children. We've committed the same sin again for the hundredth time. We've checked the empty bank account with a week to go till payday. We've had to face our friends after announcing the loss of a pregnancy. The dark thoughts linger on the edge of our mind, and we cry out with grief. Lamentations 3, 1 through 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. And at that moment, aren't we facing the lies? The lies are all around us. He doesn't love us. He's not with us. He's far away. He isn't powerful. He isn't good. He isn't true. And there, God is preaching to us with our seeing eyes. There is the light of day. There it is again, just like yesterday, just like every day. After darkness, light. After darkness, light. You're never without the gospel. Don't be discouraged. Don't feel like you have to, I mean, I've gotten to the point where I've, I've carried uh, note cards around in my pocket with verses on them. And I found at, at the, that particular moment, those do nothing for me. But what I've I've had to learn to see is that God is everywhere and that he's constantly reinforcing what I've learned about him. He's he's never far off. We need to read our Bible in such a way that we see its truth, even when the Bible has been closed and put away. After darkness, light. We read it from Genesis to Revelation, and we see it from when we first open our eyes until we lay our heads to bed at night. God is declaring his love for us. We also quickly forget what we read in the Bible, but it's supposed to shape how we see the light of the sun and every other living thing, every other thing in creation. God is using it all, the world all around us to teach us about himself. I've only used light. Like I said before, I could have done this with trees and rocks and clouds and water. It's full of these kinds of things that we take with us, that God has put everywhere to tell us the same thing. We are his and he is ours, and he never leaves us, never leaves us. God is preaching to us through everything we see. Sin crouches at the door waiting to devour us, but the triune God is combating the lies that are attempting to lead us astray. God is not far off. He is not silent. He's near as the light of day, whispering through everything his power and his goodness. I pray that we all have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, in the wind and in the trees, in the dirt and the rocks, in the light and the metal of our cars in the grains of our cereal and the fibers of our clothes. God is upholding this world by the power of his word. We should be encouraged and upheld by it too. Fight the lies by seeing the truth in every created thing. This is God's world. His voice is in everything, declaring his truth to all of us. Rejoice and be glad in it. When you find yourself in the shadows, there is a beam of light always, leading you away from the lie toward peace. Look to the light. It always follows the darkness. And the light is Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And we confess, Father, that at times we, forget, we easily forget you. We cling to the darkness at times because of the sins that we have committed that we are afraid to bring to you. We pray, Father, in this busy world, this loud world, this world full of iPhones and iPads and Facebook and car radios and noise and advertising, that we learn, Father, to listen to you, to hear you in the wind and in the trees, to see you in the clouds and the sun on our face. We pray, Father, that you humble us and that you shape us and shape our affections by your word, Father, that we may never feel apart from you and never feel afraid, but to walk in the glorious light of Christ always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.